So my name is Peter Beinart. I'm a, a fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm very, very honored to be joined today uh, by Nadia Abu El Hajj, who is the Ann Olin Whitney Professor in the Departments of Anthropology at Barnard College and Columbia University, and the co-director of the Center for Palestine Studies at Columbia, and by Rashid Khalidi, who is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia, to talk about uh, a very important statement that they have helped to put out along with a number of very distinguished Palestinian and Arab writers and intellectuals and thinkers on the subject of what anti-Semitism is and what anti-Semitism is not. And um, so Nadia, I would love to start with you. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about the genesis of this statement and what it aims to accomplish. So the genesis of the statement actually came from two colleagues, uh, one in Israel, Raif Zrek, and uh, one in London at SOAS, Gilbert Ashar. And the thought behind it was that there have been a lot of statements coming out around uh, the problem of the equation of anti-Zionism, of anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. Um, but that there wasn't, but that Arab and Palestinian intellectuals and artists really needed to sort of enter into this conversation because there's been no specific voice around that. And there were two things that I think we all felt that were really important to say. First, that yes, we do recognize the rise of anti-Semitism, um, which has certainly become more and more virulent over the last several years with the rise of right-wing populisms and nationalisms in Europe and the US. And we recognize that as a real problem. But at the same time, we think it's incredibly important both for the fight against anti-Semitism, because we think it's important to locate it in the right place and for the struggle for Palestine to not equate uh, criticism of the state of Israel or the struggle for Palestinian rights with anti-Semitism, that that's a misconflation and that that is weaponizing anti-Semitism to a political goal that actually diverts the struggle, both struggles. It diverts the struggle for Palestine away from what the real issues are, and it diverts the struggle against anti-Semitism away from what the real issues are. Um, uh, um, Rashid, I wanted to, to ask you particularly, one of the, um, there, one of the claims that's often heard, uh, that's often made, is that um, uh, Jews, like all people, deserve the right to uh, self-determination, that Israel has the right to, the right to exist in that very, kind of loaded phrase, certainly right. a phrase that's very loaded for Jews, and therefore to deny that represents anti-Semitism. And I know that the, the document deals with a number of different points, but since that comes up so frequently, I wanted to ask you how you think about that claim. Right. Um, well, actually the, the document addresses that and, and says, and, and, and certainly doesn't deny uh, the idea that a people, including the Jewish people, have the right to self-determination. What it stresses, however, is that that right cannot come at the expense of other people's rights. And the way in which Jewish self-determination was implemented and practiced involved, necessarily involved, the ethnic cleansing of most of the Palestinian population of Palestine, of what people, some people would call the land of Israel. And that this is what is absolutely unacceptable. To say that uh, we have a right to self-determination in and of itself is unexceptionable. My, in my most recent book, I, I talk about an ancestor of mine writing to Herzl and saying, yes, I understand why you would want to make such a claim. It's perfectly understandable. It's fine. But not here. 
There's a people here already. And what he's arguing is that people is going to have to be displaced. And anybody with eyes to see from that time, we're talking 1898 onwards, could see that that was the necessary inevitable result of a desire to implement this right in this place, which was already populated by a, a people who in fact were developing their own national consciousness at the same time that Zionism was developing. So the problem is the practice, the way in which that right was implemented rather than any particular concern with that right. A people that sees itself as a people is a people. I mean, that's the principle established in the UN charter and even before. Uh, so I don't think there's any argument with the, with the principle. The argument, and, and the I think the document makes that clear. The argument is that in practice, historically, this has, has led to the dispossession and immiseration of a vast majority of Palestinians. And that's, that's, that, that is something that we feel has to be understood in any discussion of Zionism. It's not the principle as much as the over a century of practice from the very beginning, removing people from the land in a gentle way, as Herzl said, will spirit them across the frontiers. He says this in his diaries uh, to the physical expulsion in 1948 of over three quarters of a million people. So that's, that's the problem that Palestinians and Arabs and many people around the world see uh, with Israel as presently constituted, rather than the idea that Jews have a right to self-determination in and of itself, that's unexceptionable, at least to the people who signed this document. And I think to most people in the Arab world, the issue is not, uh, is there such a thing as a Jewish people or do they have a right to exist as a people rather than that they are exercising this right at the expense every single day of the Palestinians. Right, right. Nadi, just to follow on this, what today, what would it look like for, for Jews to exercise self-determination uh, without denying the rights of Palestinians to equality and self-determination? Is it possible for both peoples to exercise self-determination at the same time, in the under the same equal, you know, framework of equality, and or and, and what would what would that look like? You know, I think that's a really hard question, and I'm not sure I have a simple answer to it. But I guess the way I would think about it is, first of all, obviously the debate has often been between a one-state and two-state solution, right. right? It seems to me that I am someone who does not want to, sitting in New York, adjudicate for Palestinians what the right answer is. So. I don't really take a strong position, except that I think pragmatically, the two-state solution seems to be over, unless something incredibly dramatic happens between Israel and US foreign policy. That doesn't seem realistic. So then the question is, how do Palestinians and Israeli Jews live together? And I, I say Israeli Jews very particularly. You know, Israel was established in 1948, and with all, all histories of settler nations, people acquire rights to be there. I don't think there's any question of the fact that Israeli Jews have a right to remain. But the question is, how does one constitute that state so that it respects the right of its Jewish citizens and its Palestinian citizens in whatever configuration that comes out equally? And I think that that does complicate, what it complicates is, what is the meaning of Jewish self-determination around the right of return? Because that is a complicated question of whether you could, you, whether the, the idea that people that are not citizens, currently citizens of a state and who were not born there and whose parents were not born there automatically have a right to citizenship, whereas that is not true for Palestinians whose grandparents were born there or parents sometimes. 
I don't think that's a viable solution. So I think the question is, how do you think about rights within the state? And, you know, there were ideas historically, what would a binational state look like? Right. I mean, you can think about it as a state of all of its citizens. You can think of it as a binational state. But I do think that the question of the right of return is unsustainable. And if that but I don't think that that is a denial of a Jewish right to self-determination, whatever that means, because there are ways to immigrate to different societies in any like uh, nation state. Right. So I don't have an easy answer, but I think that's the way I would think about it going forward. Who is it we have to think about as participating in this polity? And then what are the terms of that participation, right? Um, Rashid, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about the, the politics around this uh, IHRA, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of mm -hmm. anti-Semitism. I am, um, you know, I've been following these issues for a while, not as not as long as, as you have, you, uh, but um, you know, it seems to me that this effort to define um, uh, anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism has a particular uh, kind of heated up recently um, and it's right. become, um, there, there's been a particular effort around it and it's gained become more central to the, to the conversation. And I wonder if you can just kind of put in historical perspective why you think that there's such a push behind this now. What, 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 what is, what's essentially, what's, uh, what's behind this effort? Yeah, I, I frankly think that this is an effort which represents a degree of panic on the part of partisans of a certain vision of Israel who are hegemonic in Israel and, and, and have a lot of influence elsewhere. Because the idea that the Palestine cause might actually be deserve a hearing has become more widespread. Um, if you think about it for two seconds, uh, Zionism and later Israel never lacked for advocates at the highest level of American politics and in the American media. Um, there are no films, nor, 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 nor do we see, by contrast, any advocacy at all, ever, in American history until very recently for the most basic Palestinian rights from the time of Wilson until very recently. Um, there's no film like Exodus, uh, which hundreds of millions of, or book which tens maybe of millions of people have been have, been, have, have learned their history from, God help us. Um, so I think the fact that the Palestine cause is gaining traction, especially among young people all over the United States, uh, on, on Nadia's campus, on the Columbia campus, at Brown University, at University of Illinois, uh, uh, Urbana-Champaign, uh, students are active in ways that have put majority votes about uh, divestment from companies that support the Israeli occupation before university administrations, which of course have ignored the, the majority views of their students. And that kind of thing I think has led to a state of absolute panic and an escalation in attempts to simply shut down the right of Palestinians to speak by smearing them as anti-Semitic. I'm being as blunt as I can. I don't think this campaign has anything to do with real existing anti-Semitism, which is a a real present and growing danger. That danger does not come on college campuses. That danger comes from people on the far right or other extremists and hate groups, uh, which bomb synagogues, which murder innocent people in, in kosher supermarkets in New Jersey, uh, which destroy or deface uh, Jewish cemeteries and so on and so forth. That's not coming from the supporters of Palestinian rights. The real problem of anti-Semitism is being in effect ignored 
by this massive effort to impose standards, much of which, most of which, in fact, if you look at them carefully, have to do with Israel and with sh shutting down discourse on Palestine, which is annoying and angering and, and scaring, I think, some of these extreme partisans uh, of, of, of current Israeli policies. I think that's where it's coming from. I think it's partially uh, uh, directed from Israel, from the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, a man named Gilad Erdan was the minister, there's a new minister now, the Israeli Ministry of Justice, uh, uh, and, and Israel's many, 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 many friends, uh, well-heeled, powerful, uh, and, and, and folks who have institutions in the United States and in Europe, which have influence with legislatures and so on and so forth. So there's a push to basically impose this very ill-drafted set of standards, which I don't really think are meant to or will have that much effect on real existing anti-Semitism, the real problem, which is Jew haters who are killing or, 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 or defacing or doing these horrible things out in the United States and in Europe. It's directed at a, at a target that is really irrelevant to anti-Semitism per se, which is critical of Israel, which is saying things that people may found, find very uncomfortable, but has actually nothing to do with Jew hatred per se. Palestinians are not anti-Semites, or, or let me put it differently. The problem that Palestinians have with Israel is not a problem of anti-Semitism. It's a problem of what Israel has done to them and is doing to them. And that's why overwhelming majorities of people polled in the Arab world oppose normalization with Israel, the 12 countries where, where such, such polling exists, there's overwhelming opposition, 6%, I think, total, uh, approve of the idea of normalization. It has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. These are people who see what Israel does, things that most Americans are shielded from. We don't see them. Most people don't see them. The everyday misery of Palestinians at checkpoints, the everyday uh, usurpation and theft of land, the everyday violence by settlers, by the army, by border guards, by police. Uh, you know, you get the odd piece in the New York Times. It does not give you the texture. And people in the Arab world are aware of that. That's what they're angry about. It has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Now, are there anti-Semites among, uh, among Palestinian supporters of Palestine? There, of course, there must be. Are there anti-Semites in the Arab world? Of course, there may be. There are, in fact. Um, there's a whole strain of anti-Semitism uh, in some, some Islamist uh, uh, trends in the Arab world. Uh, which is religiously based. But is that the, the, the reason people are unhappy with Israel? Absolutely not. Um, it has to do with actual practices over decades and decades and decades. Uh, you can go back to the press before 1914, and you can see people all over the Arab world in every newspaper I've looked at who are looking at what Zionism is going to mean for the Arab world and for Palestine and say, this is a problem. These were not anti-Semites. Uh, these were people who were just concerned about Palestine. Um, and that is, I think, the case to this day. And trying to say that anybody who's concerned with Palestine is uh, prima facie an anti-Semite is a very drastic tactic that I think draws from a, a, a degree of panic. Um, Nadia, I wanted to follow on with you to, to just talk a little bit about um, how you see this conflation of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism or the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement and anti-Semitism playing out um, uh, on campuses or, uh, you know, in, in, in the United States, what the effect is um, uh, on people who are on Palestinians or people who want to um, support the Palestinian cause. I think it's actually, um, I mean, I think it's actually ironically both very powerful um, and very dangerous. So I, 
let me begin by following up a little bit on what Rashid said, because you mentioned BDS. I also think that the escalation of the charge becomes incredibly important. It's not new, but the escalation of the charge becomes incredibly important with the rise of BDS because it can't really be construed as a violent or quote unquote terrorist movement, right? So how do you then oppose what is you know, a long-term tactic in many movements, boycotts, right, um, divestment, whether it was South Africa or the civil rights movement, how do you oppose that when your fundamental argument for so many decades has been around the problem of Palestinian violence and quote-unquote terrorism, right? Um, so I, I think that, that that gets construed in a particular way, if I can say this, and I'll go back to the effects. It gets construed in the sort of why why single out Israel? That, that, that is what makes this anti-Semitic. But A, this was a movement started by Palestinians in the West Bank. Of course, you would single out Israel. Those are the people you're struggling against, right? So not only does every movement pick it, every political movement pick its target, but this is started and you know, supported by Palestinians as a movement. So it, of course, makes sense to focus on Israel. And in the US, a lot of the support for BDS and a lot of the activism around it is either Palestinian and other Arab Americans or American Jews who are on the left, right? So the idea of singling something out doesn't speak to why certain categories of people, this is their struggle. They see it as their struggle, it, whether, right? It is their struggle. Um, and I think just to point out the obvious, if BDS was anti-Semitic, it would call for the boycott and divestment from Jewish owned organizations around the world. That is not the call. It's not aimed at Jewish uh, corporations or Jewish corner stores. It's, call, it's a call for a boycott of Israel. And I think that distinction is incredibly important. So what is the effect of this on campuses? Well, the effect is, um, I mean, the effect is institutional. So there was an incident at Barnard College my timing's very bad, but maybe seven, eight years ago, where during the um, uh, Israel Apartheid Week, the SJP students had put up a map on Barnard Hall of Palestine that included 1948 Palestine. They did this at 5 p.m. on, a, I don't know, some evening, Thursday evening, let's say. By 8 a.m. the with, next morning- With, it with permission made, from the administration. With permission from the administration, but the, like the, right, the, not the president, but the people that allow you to hang things on buildings, right? This is a place where things have always been hung. By 8 a.m. the next morning, it was down. And it turned out that the head of the Columbia Barnard Hillel made phone calls. The president of Barnard got hundreds of phone calls overnight saying that this was anti-Semitic because it incorporated all of Palestine. First of all, the Hillel maps that they use of Israel and Palestine do not carve out the West Bank. So let's just start with that. But the point is, is so these students were totally silenced and they're, they're, it became like the administration was so worried about this charge that it took down a poster, something it hasn't done since the 60s where radicals have put all sorts of things up there because of the charge of anti-Semitism. It's a very powerful charge, right? And then students themselves, you know, a lot of Arab and Palestinian students on campus feel kind of threatened themselves because they're always accused of being anti-Semitic and they feel intimidated. It's very silencing um, because I think it's a powerful charge in American society. And I, and I, let me just ask one last thing to say to that, which is I think the other effect of the charge is a lot of people who are not 
necessarily involved, people who are neither Jewish who are committed to like rethinking the attachment of at least large swaths of the American Jewish community to Israel or Palestinians, they just end up wanting to stay out of it because they may actually agree with the critique, but they're too scared of getting labeled with that charge. So I think it has really powerful silencing effects. And then it has all these institutional effects of shut, trying to shut down SJPs and pulling down posters and, and sort of engaging in activities that administrations don't tend to do with other groups. Right. Um, um, Nadia, I wanted to just stick with you because one of the things I'm, I'm really hoping is that some of the people who watch this video will not necessarily be the people who are already familiar um, with, uh, with Palestinian academic work and with Palestinian, um, uh, you know, um, kind of experience and narrative, but some of the people who might actually have been those who I encounter uh, uh, all the time, you know, who are, whose gut reaction um, uh, will be to interpret something like, let's say, a map. Um, which, uh, which shows Palestine from the river to the sea, or this phrase, Palestine from the river to the sea, as anti-Semitic. They will say, and I will say even for myself, when I hear the phrase Palestine from the river to the sea, my initial reaction is to say, well, where are the Jews in this story, right? If this is just Palestine, um, uh, you know, most Jews do not, would not easily see themselves as Palestinians, right? So then the question is, where, you know, does this mean Jews are no longer there? Does it mean Jews are no longer, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, enjoy rights in, in this? And, I, and this has come up, obviously, recently, there have been a couple of con controversies about Rashida Tlaib retweeting a phrase about River to the Sea and Mark Lamont Hill. So I just wanted to see if you could, if you could talk a little bit about this, about this phrase and what it, its history, what it means, uh, and, and, um, uh, and, and how people react to it. Okay. So let me start with the question of, if you read that phrase, if you read the map of 48 Palestine that was hung up from a Palestinian perspective, it's not surprising that one would include 48 Palestine. It's not that long ago, right? My father who passed away about a decade ago, relatively young, you know, he, he him and his family, they all, my aunt, everybody remembers 1948, right? My grandfather lost everything in West Jerusalem. He sent everyone but my father to Cairo to wait out the war and restarted by literally having someone sneak across the armistice line to steal a bill of sale so that he could collect a rug collection from the port of Aqaba and start all over again, right? We're talking about people who in living memory remember their homes and their businesses and their lives in Palestine in 1948, it, within those 1948 borders. So from that perspective, it's incredibly reasonable to say that that is Palestine. This isn't, this isn't, you know, this isn't some deep historical memory. This, this is family memory. The, the generation of 48 is dying out, but there's still many people who are alive, including all of my aunts and an uncle, and their children that we were raised with these stories. So I think you really have to think about 48 from that perspective. Why wouldn't one remember Palestine within the 48 borders? Now, the second question I think gets back to, uh, so what does that mean, right? I mean, again, one could say the same thing. What does it mean for Palestinians to hear the term Eretz Israel, right? right. It, it clearly, it's not even a debate that it doesn't actually include Palestinians. Right. That's been the state project. So the question is, how do we go forward, right? And that's where I come back to the question of what it might've meant to have national rights for Jews to have national rights in Palestine prior to the establishment of the state 
and now 60, 70 years later, and my math is not very good this morning, is a different question, right? The question, and, and I think the, the boycott BDS movement and SJP are extremely clear on this. These are not political positions that imagine what it was the phrase wiping Israelis or whatever into the sea. This is a, a political movement to try to understand or to try to create a different future that would incorporate Israeli Jews and Palestinians. And of course the Palestinians include people who are citizens, people who are in the territories and people who are refugees. But this is not an argument for no for Israelis not having any rights. People acquire rights over time. There's no question about that, right? So I think that you have to both think about that map and that phrase from a Palestinian perspective, right? This isn't a return to some imagined past. This is family, immediate family history. And then you have to think about what people in these SJP and are actually saying. And they're really trying to think about what a just solution would be that includes Israeli Jews as well as Palestinians, right? That's how I would, I would say one. So I understand that it's, it's a long history and there's a kind of visceral response, but if one actually looks at the history of the state and what the state has actually done, Palestinians should panic about their rights because there really has been, they really have been eliminated. And the question now is how do we move forward, right? Um, Rashid, I wanted to just pick up on something that you had mentioned earlier, again, just because it's something that comes up so often that I wanted to give you the opportunity to, to talk about yeah. it. You mentioned the Islamist tradition that has that has had anti-Semitic expressions at some point. And obviously, you know, um, uh, one of the Palestinian documents that, that, that many Jews are most familiar with, maybe one of the few Palestinian documents that they are familiar with, is the original Hamas charter. Hamas recently, I think in 2017, actually changed this charter to take this stuff out. But it's an original charter, I think, from 87, for instance, does cite the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a kind of famous, you know, anti-Semitic forgery. So I want if you want you to talk a little bit, if you could, about just where this comes from. I mean, obviously, the Protocols was a, was a European document, how this enters into to the kind of political discourse and then how you think people should respond to it? Yeah, um, no, it's a good question. It's, a, it's one that I, I, often, I often hear. Um, couple things. Uh, there are multiple Islamic traditions and understandings uh, of the relations between Muslims and Jews. And what Hamas drew upon was one particularly virulent anti-Semitic strain, both in European anti-Semitism, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, um, and uh, uh, I would say indigenous Islamic strains. Um, it's very important to understand that there is a whole other Islamic tradition vis-a-vis -vis Jews. I mean, my grandfather was a, was a Qadi, um, and he had a he and most of the rest of the of the of the kind of people that he dealt with had a completely different understanding of Jews and Judaism, a very positive one actually. Um, seeing them as people of the book, uh, seeing them as uh, people who, you know, at various times had had clashes with Muslims in history, but such that that didn't, that didn't in any way affect uh, relations with Jews. And the relationship that most Muslims had with most Jews in most parts of the Muslim world for most of Muslim history were very much more positive than they were certainly in Christian Europe. Or you would not have had people fleeing from Spain to North Africa and the Ottoman Empire by the hundreds of thousands and staying there. Uh, so, I mean, there's a whole uh, literature devoted to showing that there's a deep and, and uh, ineradicable strain of Muslim, Muslim anti-Semitism. It's entirely presentist 
it, it, it derives from an understanding of the present and, and tries to reread history in that way. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's father was one of the great apostles of this, in my view, demented version of Muslim-Jewish relations. But the better versions, including many Jewish historians and, and many Muslim historians and many Muslim thinkers, would have a completely different view that is, that is entirely devoid of anti-Semitism. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the Hamas charter um, actually, as you, as you yourself pointed out, is not a particularly relevant document to understanding Hamas. Um, Hamas is an organization that negotiates all the time with the state of Israel, Hamas, including this morning's New York Times. They're negotiating over, over something, um, directly or indirectly, and which has long since signed on to the idea of a two-state solution. They wouldn't have run in the 2006 elections and become part of, and in fact, the dominant party in the PA if they didn't accept the Oslo Accords and everything that flows from them, good and bad. Um, and so this attempt to freeze Hamas in its anti-Semitic past, derived from some Muslim Brotherhood uh, doctrines uh, coming out of the 30s and the 40s in Egypt, um, is basically an attempt to say these people are immutably anti-Semites, and that's what drives hostility to Israel. It's a, it's a, it's a deep-rooted Muslim anti-Semitism. This is fundamentally false. There is no there is a strain certainly of anti-Semitism uh, in different parts of the Arab world. Actually, one of the authors uh, of uh, uh, one of the authors of the of the petition that we all signed, Gilbert Asha, has written a wonderful book on this um, about the Holocaust in the Arab world and and, and attitudes at, at this at this terrible moment, the worst moment in Jewish history, certainly modern Jewish history how Arabs reacted. And of course, the idea that because the Mufti went to Berlin, all Arabs were anti-Semites is completely false. Literally hundreds of thousands of Arabs fought with the allies, literally hundreds of thousands of Moroccans and Algerians and Palestinians and Egyptians and Jordanians against the Axis. So you have the Mufti here and you have hundreds of thousands of soldiers there. Um, and you have all kinds of politicians who in spite of the oppression that Britain uh, uh, was responsible for in Palestine, in Egypt, in Iraq, and so on and so forth, aligned themselves with the allies. So there's this, there's this mythological construct of eternal Arab anti-Semitism or Muslim anti-Semitism as most recently demonstrated during World War II, which is basically an edifice of lies. It's an attempt to justify a certain kind of hostility on one side vis-a-vis -vis another side, claiming that that other side is ineradicably eternally uh, anti-Semitic. It, it's, it's balderdash. I mean, there's just no way to justify historically uh, that way of looking at things. And that's actually true of Hamas. Hamas's problem with Israel has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Hamas's problem with Israel has to do with it, as, as with most Palestinians, with Israeli practices over many, many, many generations. By now, we're, we're in our fourth generation of this. And um, if I can add just one thing, which isn't, it's sort of inverting it again. Again, I'm not in any way saying that's not an important question, but I think it's also important to consider why one doesn't ask the other question. Um, and I don't mean you personally, but that there's some, I mean, even if we set aside, which I'm not meaning to set aside, but obviously there's structural racism in the Israeli state against Palestinians and non-Jews. But anti-Arab racism in Israeli society is rampant. I mean, I remember this was like mid nineties, there was a bar in West Jerusalem, not that I ever went in, that had a sign outside in Hebrew that said, no dogs or Arabs, right? Allowed. There's the Bitar uh, football league. There are all these parties there. I mean, incredibly deep racism 
right. against Arabs. I mean, not just Palestinians, but Arabs in general. Obviously, Mizrahi Jews suffered that. So it's also the question of why do we only ask this question and not that question, right? You know, there are these strands, and in Israel, they're incredibly powerful. Um, and in fact, you know, even as a popular opinion, aside from sort of the structural reality of the state. Right. Although I think in a bizarre irony, I think that uh, the Emiratis have now bought part of <laughs> the most notorious. Oh, I know. Movie. I know. But, you know, <laughs> so it's no. so not ironic. I mean, they're just like, it is almost so... Typical in some weird way. They ways. deserve <laughs> each other. Qatar <laughs> and whichever Emirati bought that, they deserve each other. May they be eternally um, happy. Um, yeah, it's a, you can't make this stuff up. But um, um, but no, I mean, obviously, you know, the 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 literally in an American political discourse. I mean, I don't need to tell you that the 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 idea of anti-Palestinian bigotry almost doesn't exist. I mean, in the sense that it's not even a it's not even a thing where you could be accused of it, you know. Um, so that it's almost totally invisible. Um, um, but I, in, I in France, uh, Peter, to interrupt uh, you, in France, it's actually contentious whether there is such a thing as Islamophobia. Right. Right. The, the, I would argue a, a very large proportion of the French political elite and of you know bien pensant French intellectuals argue that Islamophobia is not a thing. No such thing exists. I mean, and we're, we're talking about a country with systemic racism right. against 10, 12, 11, whatever it is, percent of its population. Right, right. No, and I've, I've had many people say that to me over the years too. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not bigotry because it's rational, right? It's just a rational response to, you know, who these people They're are. They're bad and we should be against them. Right, exactly. Um, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to just end by on a, on a more personal note. Um, you know, Nadia, you, you, you talked about the, the power that the charge of anti-Semitism has. And, you know, I mean, um, I have to say as a Jew, I'm glad that it has this power. I mean, I'm glad that there is a stigma to this, you know, um, uh, um, uh, I don't, but I, um, on, and, and yet it, it, I have to say personally, it, um, it bothers me enormously um, uh, when I feel like people in my own community whether out of fear and trauma or whether out of um, political uh, cynicism or some combination of both use this um, uh, uh, in, 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 a, in such a way as to um, genuinely kind of injure others. And I just wanted to ask both of you, but starting with you, Nadia, what, what that's like to go through that um, and, and, and how you have learned to respond to it. Um, right. So let me begin by saying, I agree. I mean, I think the charge of anti-Semitism, like the charge of any racism, should have power. It just has to be directed at the right <laughs> act, right? Um, you know, it's complicated. And I think I didn't grow up here. I mean, I came here when I was 17. So I think I don't interiorize the charge the way some other people who grew up here did, which doesn't mean I don't take it. Per I mean, which means, let me explain what I mean by that. So I don't find it upsetting in a visceral sense. I find it emotionally exhausting. Um, and I think it can be really dangerous. So let me just talk about two particular things. So when I was going through tenure, there was all this public stuff, it doesn't really matter, but the charge was so widespread that, you know, I've got death threats, right? I, there was one year where I actually, in the middle of a semester, because this, usually you get them over email, I ignore them, although whatever, but this one was somebody who was clearly in the neighborhood because of where he wanted to meet me. And we actually moved my class mm. to a hidden place. Like it was never, I moved an undergraduate class. I told them they couldn't tell anybody where it was. We had a guard outside the door at least for a month. And then it was this big secret because, you know, and I, and I actually, I actually have 
you know, well, I won't say this because then I would ban it. But I mean, in my building, like usually they let people in. I was like, you can't let anybody in, right? Do I think it's a high risk? No, but do I really want to be worrying about that? And the other piece that really does worry me is I have a child in school in New York. And I know that there have been conversations because friends of mine have told me among the parents about me being anti-Semitic. And I really worry about what it does to her because she can be so easily ostracized. And I honestly tell my poor child not to talk about Israel and Palestine in school. I'm just like, just be quiet. And I shouldn't have to tell her that, but I feel like the cost is so high for her that until she's in a context and is old enough that she can be more articulate and won't be the only person, I think it's just, you know, high school's hard enough. So I worry less about my, you know, again, it doesn't upset me in the sense of, oh my God, I, I am completely convinced I'm not anti-Semitic. I don't have any doubts about that. I think I take anti-Semitism extraordinarily seriously. And I think it's worth pointing out that the same students in SJP, you know, have aligned themselves with all these anti-racist movements, including, right, against anti-Semitism in, in the nightmare we've all lived through in the last four years. I'm not saying it started then, but it's gotten worse. But I think that there are consequences that are really dangerous. And in a country that's getting more and more violent, we should take them very seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for being willing to talk about that. Um, uh, Rashid? Yeah, uh, I mean, unlike Nadia, uh, I grew up very near where uh, both of you are now on the Upper West Side. Uh, I was born in Manhattan. Are you, are you, you are in New York, aren't you, Peter? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah I can tell from the, the windows <laughs> behind you. And I, know where, I know where Nadia lives. I don't <laughs> live very far away from other of you. Um, and so I grew up with this. And I, I guess I do internalize it maybe more than Nadia, who grew up in, you know, Beirut in the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, and I've always had to deal with it ever since I was a kid in elementary school uh, in New York and then Mount Vernon and, um, and I, I, I've learned to deal with it. Um, and I, I feel very bitter and angry, especially in the present, when some of the same people who are wielding these charges of anti-Semitism are themselves linked to or dependent on or supporters of real existing virulent anti-Semites in American society on the right. It, it, it really, that really bothers me to be accused of something which I, I believe I'm not guilty of in any way. Uh, and to see some of the people leveling these accusations who are hand in glove with real anti-Semites, people who are, who are Jew haters of the, of the lowest sort. Uh, this, is, this, this is beyond ironic. This is just, this is very hurt, hurtful. Um, and it is, uh, it's a cynical play uh, on the part of the people who are doing it. Um, I, 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 that's one reason I take it a little less seriously. Uh, I lived through 11, 10, 11 years of war in Beirut. So I, personal danger that was, you know, all around all of us, everybody, my, my family, my kids, everybody. Um, and so I'm not particularly worried about myself my children are grown. I don't, you know, I don't have the, I don't have the concerns that, that Nadia did. When my kids were little, it was a problem. Things were, things in some ways were worse in the circles I was in uh, when we came back to the States in the, in the mid eighties, um, in terms of children singling out other children and saying nasty things about them and so on and so forth. Um, but that's all past now for me. Um, I watch my grandchildren navigating these things 
and it's a it's 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 a little painful to watch. Uh, as as Nadia said, I mean, you know, it's hard enough to be a 12 year old, or in her case of her daughter, a 14, 15 year old. Um, but to have this on top of it, um, you know, American society is changing for the better, in the sense of a greater acceptance among young people, at least, of diversity, and an understanding of of, of things that I think in my generation maybe kids didn't didn't necessarily have. But there, it's also changing for the worse. Um, there are vast swaths of our society that have have yet to come to terms with some ingrained forms of bigotry. And anti-Semitism is one of the most virulent among them. And it's a little scary to see the same people who are themselves actually anti-Semitic or, or, or in league with virulent anti-Semites wielding these, these charges against people whose only concern is that the Palestinian people get justice um, and that there be a fair outcome, uh, not just for Palestinians, but also for Israelis. I mean, the oppressor suffers as well. The, the white racist in his fear or her fear uh, uh, is harming himself or herself. Uh, Israelis are paying a price for their subjugation of Palestinians for some of their attitudes uh, in terms of sending their children to, to carry out an occupation or to fight wars in terms of, of being constantly on their guard in certain ways that are a function of how they have chosen to implement their right of self-determination by expelling a large part of another people and holding the rest of them down and preventing them from enjoying the same self-determination that they claim uh, for themselves. Um, and so it's painful to see people who are simply arguing for justice being smeared in this way. Um, very painful. But, you know, <laughs> Palestinians have been smeared in a variety of ways over over the, the, the many decades that this issue has been alive. And... Um, this is not entirely new. And some people have, you know, have suffered much more than much, 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 much more than either Nadia or I comfortable in, in the United States uh, with all of the benefits of, of, of tenure at prestigious universities and, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, I, I have family members who uh, in, in different parts of Palestine or in Lebanon or elsewhere, uh, whose lives have been directly and are still directly impacted uh, in ways that we just don't have to deal with. Um, whether whether they whether it's it's things like checkpoints or worrying about their children at night, you know, worrying about worrying about Israeli raids uh, on their homes uh, and so on and so forth. Um, my brother had his home, one of his a house he was trying to build bulldozed. It was in the wrong area, bulldozed, just like that. Uh, those kinds of things. <laughs> uh, Nadia and I don't have to worry about in New York City at least. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't think we're in, in, in bad shape as far as that's going. It's just painful to see that in a situation where this, this accusation is being weaponized to shut down Palestinian rights discourse when there is a, a real danger, I mean, a danger that's growing more virulent. I mean, Jew hatred is actually growing in the United States and Europe and targeting people who actually are not, in fact, guilty of it uh, takes away and, and, and cheapens a real struggle against a real and present danger. That to me is painful. I mean, seeing people suffering because of anti-Semitism and people who are supposedly, supposedly guardians on this, in this issue, on this issue, diverting attention, money, energy, legislation to deal with something that has literally nothing to do with that. I mean, that is awful to watch, awful to watch. Uh, and and, and it's, it's, a, it's a terrible cynical ploy on the part of people on the right, but the fact that other people in the Jewish, in the leadership of establishment uh, institutions of the Jewish community lend themselves to this is disgraceful. They, they should be ashamed of themselves. 
there's real anti-Semitism out there. They should be dealing with that, not trying to you know do 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 propaganda work for Israel by shutting down people who call for Palestinian rights. I want to thank both of you so much for you know for this whole conversation and being for you know for being so so uh, emotionally you know honest and and with these painful things at the end. You know, one of the things that really I think saddens me is that is that I feel like if um, part of the the what the exclusion of Palestinians from public discourse does the fact that very few synagogues or Jewish community centers or Jewish day schools can invite Palestinian speakers in is it prevents people from hearing you know you say what you just said so that they have an so you know so that they have an understanding of what the cost of these charges actually are when they're thrown around in this in this kind of cynical way and also because i just don't genuinely think i think someone could listen to the two of you you know and and come away and thinking well i disagree with certain things that were said or even that certain things make me really uncomfortable and and um and are difficult for me but i just don't see how someone of good faith could listen and come away and think that person is an anti-semite um and um and so you know it says in in the mission who is the one who learns from all people. And I really just wish that that we were, that there were more people willing to listen um, because I think it would actually counteract some of this really harmful discourse. Um, I would really encourage everyone to, to read this statement. It's a very, very compelling and important statement of Palestinian Arab scholars on anti-Semitism. And uh, Rashida and Nadia, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for thank having so us, Peter. Yes, thanks for having me. Goodbye.